From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Iran has been one of the country's hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic and it still remains as the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in the Middle East. According to official figures, the virus has infected more than 76,000 people. More than 4,800 have died. And according to a new assessment by the Iranian Parliament's Research Center, nearly 30,000 Iranians could die of the virus if only 10% of workable containment policies are in place. The report suggests that the number of people who have died might be almost twice as many as those announced by the health ministry, and the number of infected cases could be eight to ten times the official figures. This week, we discuss the reality of conditions for political prisoners in Iran in the midst of the coronavirus crisis and the impact of U.S. sanctions on Iran's healthcare system. In recent weeks, there have been calls for the U.S. to ease the sanctions so that companies can send in much-needed food, medical supplies, and medicine to Iran. Here is a clip by Human Rights Watch highlighting the impact of sanctions on Iran. In May 2018, President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the nuclear agreement with Iran and in the following months reimposed broad economic sanctions and added more. Because Iran imports specialized medicine and medical equipment, sanctions are now contributing to a lack of access to critical supplies, from chemotherapy drugs for children with cancer to medicine for people with epilepsy. While the U.S. has sanctions exemptions for humanitarian trade, Human Rights Watch research shows that they have not worked in practice. International banks, pharmaceutical companies, and other businesses are ending their trade with Iran to avoid sanctions risks, a classic example of overcompliance. U.S. officials claim that they are standing with the Iranian people, but they have designed and implemented policies that are harming Iranians' human rights. The U.S. should take immediate steps to ensure Iranians' access to medicine and medical equipment. Iran also has an obligation to reduce the negative impact of sanctions, including preventing government corruption. That was an audio clip by Human Rights Watch highlighting the impacts of U.S. sanctions on Iran. I spoke with Tara Sepehriyafar, a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, about the reality of conditions for Iran's political prisoners amid coronavirus spread in the country. Human Rights Watch has been closely following and documenting the human rights violations in Iran. I want to start by asking you to give us an overview of what has been happening to political prisoners in the midst of the coronavirus crisis in Iran. Last month, the Center for Human Rights reported that a number of political prisoners were infected with the virus. I assume real numbers are hard to come by. There have been um, numerous reports, I would say at least half a dozen cases um, from prisons um, in Tehran and outside in, in provinces. But unfortunately, because we don't have independent access to prisons, 
um, nor are enough testing available. We can't confirm if these prisoners have actually contracted COVID-19 or a bad flu. What is evident is that Iran has taken steps to um, reduce prison population. According to authorities, they have released um, up to 85,000 people temporarily or through clemency orders that have been issued prior to the Iranian New Year, Nowruz, which started on March 20th. But dozens of political prisoners, people who are being prosecuted for free expression, peaceful assembly, or um, their religious and political beliefs are still behind uh, bars. Part of the reason is that most of the um, orders that have been issued for temporary releases only apply to people who are spending prison sentences shorter than five years. And over the past couple of years, we have seen a dramatic increase in the length of prison sentences that human rights defenders and political prisoners are being sentenced to. So many of the well, well-known well human rights defenders, such as Nasrin Sutudeh and our guest Mohammadi um, and many others, um, are in fact sentenced to prison sentences much longer than five years and they weren't even subjected to some of those orders and despite some of them having being in the category of high risk um, individuals authorities have have so far refused to uh, facilitate um, some sort of uh, temporary furlough for them and we're very concerned about the situation. So let's uh, take a step back. As you said, last month the authorities in Iran temporarily released some 80 to 90,000 prisoners from the general prison population because of the coronavirus outbreak. Ali Bagheri, Iran's deputy judiciary chief, said that 100,000 prisoners were about to release, quote-unquote, conditionally, and the most of them had been incarcerated for owing money or other minor crimes. First off, do you have any information of what criteria was used to temporarily release some and keep others in prison? Because prisons in Iran are overcrowded, and we really do not know exactly how many prisoners we have across the country. I have seen a number, the figure 240,000, and there have been also some riots and protests, and some prisoners have escaped because they fear they might get infected by the virus. Um, Yeah, I think it's important to note that individuals detained in institutions, basically people were deprived of freedom of movement are definitely at an increased uh, level of risk of contracting infectious diseases. So prisoners, because of the condition, they're being uh, kept already vulnerable. And it's extremely important for um, authorities around the world. This is not only about Iran. We discuss similar issues in in the United States and other countries that have overcrowded prison to take precautionary measures to ensure that prisoners are not going to get infected and if they do have adequate and prompt access to health care. So there is a reason that prisoners are concerned about getting sick. The criteria that has been used and shared with public is basically some of the orders issued by the head of the Iranian head of the Iranian judiciary as well as the clemency order by um, Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, because the outbreak coincided with um, 
with uh, Iranian and New Year, Persian New Year, Nowruz, as well as another religious holiday. And normally those are the occasions that authorities use to basically grant conditional or error releases to different categories of um, prisons. Clemency to, yeah, exactly, to different categories of prisons. Some of these are basically, um, the criteria includes obviously the type of the charge they're facing, as well as um, as well as the length of the sentence they have received, um, plus the time they have served, they have already served in prison. For conditional releases, there are often additional criteria, such as, quote-unquote, being on good behavior. But at the end of the day, um, there is um, a huge level of discretion that judicial authorities use. And in the case of political prisoners, we have documented numerous cases that authorities uh, just arbitrarily apply these um, criteria or simply uh, temporary furlough in a way to basically coerce prisoners to um, sign pledges to give up activities or just simply delay um, their furlough or even access to medical care in certain cases to increase pressure on them. And there are also political prisoners who have been furloughed. They have to pay large sums of bail. Yes, and those amounts have have increased substantially um, over the past years. Um, Some of them are so high that it's just unimaginable for, for example, a labor rights activist, someone who comes from working uh, class background, to even be able to afford paying those large amounts, basically posting those large amounts of bail. It has been applied in the case of um, people who are not accused of any serious or real crime. For example, um, students who have been arrested for participating in a demonstration or criticizing authorities. I should also mention that I agree that the overcrowding issue is not just uh, particular to Iran, but because of the nature of Iranian regime, like many other authoritarian states, it is very, very difficult to hold the government accountable because of the lack of free media, lack of freedom of expression. Exactly. And the most important dif- difference that you mentioned is lack of um, independent access. Exactly. Um, international and independent observers have not been allowed to visit Iran or visit Iranian prisons for over a decade now. And also, similarly, several civil society initiatives to work on this issue or bring bring the attention of authorities to these problems have resulted in people involved in the cause to um, to face a prosecution and harassment. In February, UN Special Rapporteur Javid Rahman, he said that, for example, uh, people in prisons in Iran, they're not given soap and they had to procure it on their own, and also a lot of prisoners dealing with anxiety over the potential spread of COVID-19 in Iran's prisons. I was going to say that there's also disparity in terms of access to to hygienic materials across the country. Yeah. Um, most of information that we receive comes from some of the more prominent places of detention in Tehran, and if you want to compare their condition with uh, with prisons outside or in, in more marginalized areas, for example, in Ahvaz and other cities, mm-hmm. um, they're actually 
in a better shape in terms of having access to hygienic material. But also, I think what has happened is that over the years, um, while authorities provide the bare minimum and they have kind of privatized uh, the system in prison. So um, prisoners have to purchase many of the things they need. For example, there are reports that in Garchak prison, where mostly women are detained, sometimes the quality of drinking water is so bad that people end up purchasing drinking water, which is obviously a huge a barrier for many of the people who basically are there for petty crimes and can't can't uh, afford purchasing bottles of water for drinking. Given the fact that they have released some 90,000 prisoners from prisons across the country, do we know the state of hygiene and whether the prisoners have been properly separated? Under Iranian law, prisoners should be separated based on based on the category of charges they're facing, as well as age and their vulnerability. But that hasn't always been respected. Even in some of the more known prisons, such as Evin prison, you often have uh, people reporting that they're being kept with prisoners that are either sentenced or accused of committing uh, violent crimes that increases the anxiety of prisoners in general. So what we know is that at this point, if prisoners shows symptoms of COVID-19, they're going to be taken away and being quarantined. And they're also separating people who are being arrested from people who are already who are already detained and they have in places that we know they have put in place certain measures of social distancing but obviously the extent that those measures could be implemented uh, in prison is limited i however don't have accurate information about the level of access to basic hygienic materials such as soap and masks and others that might, that people might need in prisons at this moment. Last month, the internationally renowned human rights lawyer Nasrine Sutudeh, along with several other political prisoners, went on a hunger strike demanding the release of all political prisoners And she wrote an open letter to the authorities in which she said the same military and intelligence agencies that compromise the safety of this nation with their antagonistic policies are insisting on keeping the political prisoners in prisons until the horrors of this health crisis spread to their lives and impact their families. So what is your best understanding of the health conditions inside prisons where political prisoners are held? And can you tell us about the hunger strike by political prisoners, Nasrina Sutudeh and several others, who participated in it, and the role of family members outside of the prisons to amplify their voices? So the issue is that majority of these people should not have been arrested and prosecuted in the first place. Um, someone like Nasrin Sutudeh is is being imprisoned solely for human rights activities. So while the arrests and detention in the first place is, is not justified, um, refusing to release um, her and other people in similar situation at the time that we can agree that 
and health experts agree it's not a matter of opinion. Placing them in detention is putting them at a, um, at a heightened risk of contracting the virus. It's it's not only irresponsible, but it's also cruel. And times and times, judicial and intelligence authorities have shown that they do not prioritize the health and safety of these people. And as a matter of fact, use it as an additional pressure on them. Mm-hmm. So I think there are reasons to be very concerned about refusing uh, to release political prisoners. These people have not done anything wrong. They haven't damaged anything to so they're threat to no one. So there's no justification for keeping them behind bars at this point. And she got 38 years in prison and 148 lashes over her yes, defense uh, of political prisoners, including women protesting the compulsory hijab law. Yes, and out of which she has to spend uh, 12 years of that. And if you look at the details of the verdict um, issued against her, it's one of the most vivid examples of criminalizing human rights activism. References to her activities um, that are considered quote-unquote criminal is nothing but her speaking out against prosecution of people who voluntarily refused to and peacefully refused to wear a headscarf or reaching out to human rights group. We have all the reasons to be concerned. My understanding is that uh, hunger strike um, has ended. Um, every week, families of prisoners go for their um, weekly visit that are now um, done through a glass window. Mm-hmm for safety measures and are extremely worried about their loved ones. And bear in mind that some of the families who go for these visits are elderly themselves and they are in the high risk category. So it's actually from um, descriptions by different families of prisoners, such as Nasr Institute's husband Reza Reza Khandan, there's a lot of anxiety every week. Families don't want to pass on the opportunity of seeing their loved ones, but they're extremely concerned about. Or the case of uh, Nargese Mohammadi, another women's rights activist, whose family is really worried about her conditions because she has been suffering from ill health for, for a long time. Yeah, she actually suffers from a neurological disease. Her previous um, prison sentence was reduced and she was released on a medical furlough because of that condition. And recently, over the past few months, she has been basically sent to exile in in a prison outside Tehran because of being an outspoken advocate on behalf of other prisoners. So the family is actually extremely worried and I... For the life of me, I can't understand why authorities might want to take such risk. Someone who has neurological issues and is at a higher risk should not be in in prison right now. So last month, in addition to prisoners from general prison population, authorities in Iran also temporarily released a number of political prisoners after, as I said, they posted large sums of bail. Tell us more about people who were released on temporary basis and why others are still in prison. Um, so I think the people who have been released are all um, the ones who were serving sentences less than five years. Mm. Um, for example, some of the labor rights activists 
Nedo Naji. She was um, she was released on a furlough and then later found out that she was subjected to the clemency order. Similarly, Abdurreza Kuhpaye, one of the eight um, conservationists who have been prosecuted on bogus espionage charges for the past two and a half years, was released temporarily and then later found out that he was he was subjected to the clemency order. Couple other political activists have also been been released, and um, some of the furloughs have continued after the Nowruz break. For example, Kumar Smarzban, a young satirist who was initially sentenced to 11 years in prison for his writings, and uh, was just recently released on a furlough until the end of the Iranian calendar month as well as another journalist. And also, my understanding is that some of those furloughs are being renewed. For example, Nazanin Zaghai Radcliffe, the British-Iranian charity worker, was also released on a furlough, and her furlough has been extended at least one time. So I think everyone is kind of in this, those people who are released and are not subjected to clemency are in this situation of limbo. And while uh, they're out, out of prison, they actually don't know when they would be called in because, for example, before the new year, we had a case of a former a member of Shiva City Council, a young and outspoken representative, just being rearrested by authorities for a, for a few days over his criticism online at the height of the um, COVID-19 outbreak. So you have cases of new arrests, and I've seen people receiving letters that is summoning them to serve their sentences. So authorities have not halted the prosecution. Actually, on social media, you sometimes see people joking about the fact that the only part of the system that is fully functioning at the time that everyone is trying to shut down unnecessary activities is the intelligence part that is still trying to prosecute peaceful dissidents. Yes, that's very true. These are some of the famous prisoners that we just discussed. We should also mention that thousands of people, young people, were arrested during the last November protest. And we do not exactly know, if I'm not mistaken, how many people are still in prison and what their situation is like. Um, that is correct. The number authorities shared in the beginning and Many estimate that it's an understatement with 7,000 people. Not all of them, we think, stayed in detention, but we know the courts have been issuing sentences. Two months ago, there was reports of three people who participated in a November protest and were arrested afterwards, receiving uh, the death penalty. So it's actually very concerning. And the country has been going through so many crises over the past six months alone that even the me- domestic media attention on some of these issues keep shifting. So while everyone should be focused on the risk of these people um, receiving the death penalty, the country has already moved on to the next crisis, which yeah. is COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that prison under Iranian law, prisoners cannot use clemency orders until their sentence is finalized. And even for temporary releases, only between the period a judge has to sign off on on a temporary release order. So for people who have been arrested in recent protests and have not been, been sentenced or their sentence hasn't been finalized, it could actually be much harder to get any form of release.
from prison in this condition. And as you mentioned, um, they're not very well known by the human rights community or um, activists because they don't come from the traditional human rights defender background of working with the Iranian society for for um, several years. So there is an additional risk of their pleas and, and suffering not being reported. In February, Iran judiciary also handed down prison sentences to eight environmental activists ranging from four to ten years on, again, bogus charges of spying for the United States and acting against Iran's national security. Can you remind us why they were arrested and what their situation is like? This has been one of the most complicated cases of recent years, and that is because um, there is a clear tension and disagreement between different intelligence institutions inside the country about the nature of these accusations. And these uh, people, and actually one of the people who was arrested with the group, um, Dr. Kabu Sayed Emami died under suspicious and unclear condition in prison and authorities have not provided family with any convincing answer about uh, into his death. These people were arrested by Iran's Revolutionary Guard intelligence organization that has assumed a more prominent role in, in prosecuting activists in recent years. And they were accused of using environmental projects as a cover to collect sensitive military information. But from day one, um, the Minister of Intelligence, the state environmental organization, and basically the opinion of the administration was that these people have not committed espionage and their prosecution was very untransparent for a very long time it wasn't very clear what they're being charged for what evidence authorities had and they were kept in solitary confinements for a long time their trial was very untransparent and it became um, clear that the only quote-unquote evidence that was being used against them was confessions that were obtained under psychological torture. And when Nilufar Bayani, one of the conservationists who has been arrested to 10 years in prison, um, spoke out against the treatment um, she had received in detention in her trial in February last year, the judge simply barred her from attending the trial. The trial was resumed and halted several times. And at some point, the charges were elevated to sowing corruption on earth, a a charge that could carry the death penalty. And then it was downgraded again to cooperating with the hostile state of the United States and Israel. And so there's been a lot of domestic back and forth between different parallel agencies about this case. But at the end of the day, what what is in the case is nothing. The authorities have not included any any evidence whatsoever into such bogus charges. And it's very disturbing that people who who were working on environmental projects could be prosecuted like this. As a matter of fact, Nilufar, as part of the sentencing, Nilufar is sentenced to returning the salary she earned working as a consultant with UN Environmental Program as illicit income, which is very disturbing if, if Iranian authorities consider working for the United Nations as an illicit activity. It has been a very troubling case, and despite all the international and domestic 
campaigning against this, it seems like the Revolutionary Guards organization and the judiciary have the power to simply sentence people for very unclear reasons. Have you or your colleagues at Human Rights Watch, have you been able to speak with people who are familiar with their case? Uh, we actually have been able to speak with with people who are very familiar with the case, yes. And what did you hear? As I just mentioned, there is nothing in the verdict that is incriminating these activists beyond the confessions that were obtained under torture. The narrative authorities are providing is that these people have somehow been recruited to spy for the United States without providing any evidence of, of such accusation. These people were working for a domestic NGO. They had relationship with different UN entities. Mm. They had relationship with the state organization. And everything they did was transparent. There are accusations that the cameras they used for monitoring wildlife might have spying devices. But there's no nothing to prove that argument. As a matter of fact, the email exchanges between different people affiliated with the organization and the Treasury Department OFAC office to make sure that these can be imported to Iran to do the activities and get in, in compliance with the sanction and laws placed by the United States are being used as evidence that these people had something to do with the United States, which is not, not the issue. If you've tried to do any kind of humanitarian or relief work with Iran, you know that you have to you have to obtain proper licenses in the United States before importing certain devices, either even medical equipment or or even money for charity purposes to to Iran. I have always wondered, Tara, why their case is not getting more attention. I think many people spoke out uh, about this case, both in the environmental um, in the environmental community and also the human rights community, and many of the UN agencies, governments, and UN special rapporteurs, and many spoke out against the prosecution of these environmental experts. But the reality is that. Iran has built a very high um, threshold for scrutiny over the past several decades. They have basically internalized some of the some of the international pressure, and they're able to dismiss it as politicized. And also, when there are high ten- tensions between Iran and the international community, in this context, it's more between Iran and the United States. It's actually much more difficult to create impactful international pressure on Iran to act in accordance with its human rights Mm. obligations, because many of the actors who will be outspoken are having a difficult time finding their place with their right political narrative because they consider things around um, Iran in a more politicized lens. I'm speaking with Tara Sepehri, a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, where she investigates human rights abuses in Iran and Kuwait. We are discussing the reality of conditions for Iran's political prisoners in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, and after the break, we will discuss the impact of U.S. sanctions on the healthcare system in Iran. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us.
those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razazan, and I'm speaking with Tara Seperiyefar, a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, about the reality of conditions for Iran's political prisoners in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis and the impact of U.S. sanctions on the healthcare system in Iran. Tara, I want to switch gears and talk to you about the impact of sanctions on Iran's healthcare system specifically. The U.S. claims that the sanctions exempt the sale of medicine and medical devices, but it is well documented that the sanctions on financial institutions and companies that do business with Iran has made it nearly impossible for Iran to buy items like ventilators, raw material for medicine and other essential goods. So tell us about the impacts of sanctions on Iran's healthcare system and how it has hindered its ability to fight COVID-19. So even prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, we had documented cases of uh, sanction restricting Iranians' access to medicine and, and medical care. Even though sanctions the U.S. has created exemptions for humanitarian trade within its sanction regimes. These sanctions have become so expansive and so comprehensive, particularly on international financial mechanisms, and that makes it very difficult for, uh, for private companies or humanitarian groups to operate within the system. So in theory, there should be a path for Iran to purchase medicine and pay for it. But this path has become narrower and narrower and narrower. And one problem is finding companies that are willing to take the risk and go through the compliance procedure to even sign a contract with Iran. And it's not a huge market, so not many companies might want to do this. But then you also have to find a bank that is willing to authorize and support this Mm -hmm. transaction. You have to find insurance. All of those make it more complicated. And for example, back in September, U.S. not only over the past year, not only U.S. has ended waivers for countries to purchase Iranian oil, but they also designated Iran's central bank under their counterterrorism measures. Um, So that for example, resulted in banks in South Korea to just stop all trade with Iran, because basically all trades are going through Iran's central bank. Iran is providing subsidized rates of dollar for essential goods. When we looked into this issue back in October and and reported on it, we did not find an, an acute shortage of access to basic medication, but we were able to identify problems for patients with special and rare diseases and their lack of access to medication that is more complicated and usually imported partially or in full. For example, cancer uh, patients are reporting a lot of problem. We document the case of uh, patients suffering from a rare genetic disease called EB, and they weren't able to get the specialized dressing um, they used to receive to cover their blisters that are caused on their skin because the company had just stopped and their trade with Iran. Similarly, many of the humanitarian groups that provide relief and aid on the ground in Iran have had trouble transferring their funds to the country. Norwegian Refugee Council, for example, in last August said that it took them a year to establish a banking channel that 
would enable them to transfer their findings from Norway to Iran. And what they do, they provide access to education to Afghan immigrants. So these are some of the structural problems that have been caused by the expansive nature of the sanctions and the rhetoric of the U.S. administration um, on basically going after every single entity that might be perceived as providing any sort of aid to Iran. So when the when COVID-19 hit the country, Iran was already impacted, both financially and in terms of access to medical care. And at the time that some of these medical equipment, such as ventilators, CTS scans, PPE, all of them are in, are in very high demands, Iran faces significant barriers in terms of their access to these material. Um, I was speaking to a doctor who works in Iran and is aware of the government response, and I think he actually summed it up very well. He said a government needs public trust and the trust of health professionals and resources to manage a crisis of this magnitude. Iranian government is in a very bad place in terms of public trust. The public trust has been severely damaged over the past few months alone by, for example, the brutal repression of the protesters and the downing of the civilian airline in January. And uh, over the years, they have marginalized experts within Iran's governance system. But there's no way that you could deny that Iran's resources are also being impacted by sanctions. So the way he put it, and I, I agree with him, is that basically sanctions are exacerbating the incompetency crisis that the Iranian government suffers from. And I also should mention, because I hear that because of the recent protests, people have lost their trust in the government. But I have to say that the government has been dealing with the legitimacy issue for many years. It just depends on who you're asking. That's definitely correct. But um, what I was referring to is basically the pace of pace of crisis that the country has yes. experienced yes. and the failure in every single one of them to convince the public that they were taking their well-being and trust and interest in their mind. They added to this distrust by lying about the first cases of coronavirus. Yes. Again, the problem of transparency, as you mentioned, goes way back. It didn't start with COVID-19, but Iran has not been able to convince even domestic politicians that they're being transparent with their measures and both preventive measures and also responsive measures in terms of identifying the cases and announcing the total number of people who are being affected by COVID-19. And this just came after Iranian authorities straight up lied to the public about shooting down a civilian airline for three days. And that came as a huge shock to a particular segment of the population that tend to trust the, the narrative coming from the authorities. And when after three days, they basically said that they had not disclosed that piece of information, I think it was a huge shock for a group of people who tend to be closer to the government. France, Germany and the UK, they confirmed on March 31st that Instex has successfully concluded its first transaction to facilitate the export of medical goods from Europe to Iran. Can you tell us a bit about this program and how this is helping mitigate the pandemic crisis in Iran? 
if it does. Yeah, I think Instex has been in the making since the nuclear deal. So I don't think the operationalization was related to COVID-19, but it coincided with the outbreak. And prior to that, Swiss and the United States had also operationalized another humanitarian channel. So those are both steps in the right direction in a sense that they could provide a clear and transparent channel for financing humanitarian goods. But there are also more challenges in the way. And some experts have criticized the burdensome procedures required, for example, for the Swiss-U.S. channel, and its impact has remained to be seen. But there are also issues with how some of these funds could, could become available for Iran. As I was mentioning, that Iran has different escrow accounts in different countries and different frozen assets in different places. And as Iran is not able to sell its oil, they're going to have more problems with the amount of available currency in, in foreign currency to purchase some of these issues. So, And if you look at it, increasingly Iran demands access to currency as opposed to just a channel. So there are a lot of technical difficulties that need to be cleared out uh, in terms of access, but they're definitely useful tools. But in order for them to be effective, there needs to be political will behind it. Europeans uh, need to have the political will to actually ensure the system is is functioning. And similarly, United States officials, instead of making just PR comments and shifting the entire blame on the Iranian government, which definitely bears a significant part of the blame of mismanagement, take steps to ensure that these paths are clear and transparent for people who need to navigate the system. And bear in mind, these um, range from pharmaceutical companies to NGO coalitions, for example. There are a lot of people outside Iran that are trying to fundraise and provide help to the country. It's not going to solve the problem buying three ventilators from the U.S. and transferring it to Iran. But those people should also be able to navigate the system and be able to understand the system. So shifting the blame on Iran alone is not going to solve the problem. So how does this work? Iranian government deposits money in an account, and then from that account, presumably, they will be able to conduct trades and get humanitarian help they need? Prior to establishing these systems, certain banks in certain countries, such as Turkey, um, South Korea, India, were still buying oil from Iran and they were keeping the, the currency in their accounts, in their banks as escrow accounts. And those were being used to purchase medical um, medicine and medical equipment. This mechanism has been celebrated yeah. for the past couple of weeks as a successful mechanism to bypass U.S. sanctions and continue trade with Iran. As of now, Instex is not bypassing U.S. sanctions. Um, Instex is actually in compliance with U.S. sanctions because it's being solely used for humanitarian trade that is already exempted from sanctions. Um, The idea of Instex, when it was proposed, it was supposed to be beyond humanitarian trade. But over the past year and a half, it has evolved to a humanitarian trade mechanism as the first step. But it basically involves banks within Europe and Iranian central bank. And Iran has different assets and Mm. cash and basic currency outside Iran that they're being used. Usually there's no currency that's being transferred physically in, in, in any condition. 
but it's with the help of the Iranian equivalent of Instex, and there's a system in Europe, and they they do the trade. So companies don't want to be anywhere public in the issue. That that was the problem we had to. Given the backbreaking sanctions on Iran, for people who are in the United States and they want to help by sending money, by sending ventilators, masks, PPEs, what can they do? There are actually several groups that have already obtained licenses from the United States Treasury Department for humanitarian relief. And they are doing fundraising and transferring both aid and equipment to Iran. I think it's for people who want to help. This is the best and safest way that is legal, but it's also done through civil society. And so because of the complication caused by um, U.S. um, sanction regime, it's virtually impossible for individuals to collect money on their own and pass it to Iran in a way that doesn't run the risk of violating sanctions. But different NGOs, nonprofit organizations that have already been established in the U.S. uh, have obtained proper licensing to send both aid and equipment to Iran. There is a recent coalition called Humanitarian Relief Coalition and multiple groups such as Moms Against Poverty, Keep Children in School. These are mostly West Coast-based relief organizations that are collecting money and providing equipment to Iran. I think if anyone is interested those are probably the most direct way to contribute, but there are also probably efforts done by other ICRC or other international organizations such as Relief International that have presence on the ground. You know, Iran is one of the hardest hit by this virus, and this is a global pandemic, and the solution should be global um, as well. According to Reuters, Iran's parliament research center just published an assessment that says nearly 30,000 Iranians could die of the virus if only 10% of workable containment policies are in place, and Iran is gradually opening up the government. And this 46-page document warns that a peak in Iran could be as far away as November, when a second wave is going to hit. What sort of help Iran is getting from other countries? I know the European Union has donated $22 million. Japan has sent $23 million to Iran. EU has exported medical goods to Iran. As I said in the first use of this financial mechanism set up last year, what kind of help is Iran getting from other countries in terms of masks, PPEs, ventilators, sanitizers? As you mentioned, several countries, including neighboring countries um, such as UAE and Qatar, have been uh, providing um, help um, to the Iranian government, Uh, but um, they're not necessarily sufficient. Iran is in a difficult economic situation. They need to um, shift priorities to containing the virus while um, making sure people's basic needs are met. But as you mentioned, the, the, the problem is not localized and the solution should meet the local needs, but also needs to be a coordinated solution because one country alone cannot eradicate the, the virus and be immune from the risk if other countries are not successful in their, in their attempt. Because what I was surprised with, since Iran does need a lot of help, 
Iranian Ministry of Health official last month on March 24th refused to allow Medicine Frontiers uh, COVID-19 team to enter Iran. They were going to Isfahan and uh, they had already sent two cargo planes carrying materials to build inflatable 50-bed treatment units which landed in Iran, but they basically revoked their visa. Why would they do that if they need help? Uh, my understanding is that they have ultimately came to an agreement to provide the relief in a different format. And, but it's not new. Part of the problem is that this is a national security and a politicized issue for Iran, and both in talking about the impact of sanctions and talking about the la lack of impact of sanctions because it is, it is a political issue. So it has been very difficult to get reliable information on that front. And the truth is that Iran has domestic resources that should be utilized. Um, you see growing calls inside the country by different policymakers and economists about the need for different economic enterprises affiliated with foundations, uh, the, the ones that we know as bonyad, to shift their um, assets and put it into relief work. But the international community should also help Iran. It has been very disappointing to see some states taking a hyper-nationalized response, assuming that they are going to be successful. WHO is an essential organization that needs to coordinate among different states. But in Iran's case, it's not just uh, because of the national interest. It's because it's a securitized state. They are used to securitizing every single social and political issue, uh, this problem is far more complex than some of the other ones they have dealt with. You can securitize the problem, but you're not going to be able to solve it through a security lens. You need public health measures, you need economic relief, you need the trust of the public because you need certain level of cooperation from the people to be able to overcome this challenge. And the securitized state like Iran is not well equipped to work in that mindset that you see some jokes on social media that like, sorry, you can't really arrest Corona or put it in solitary confinement. Yeah. You still have to deal with it. There are reports of different government officials or doctors who cast doubt on government stats being arrested or being or losing their job. Mm. That's not going to solve the problem. Ultimately, you need you need public trust and collaboration. And in order to be able to get the cooperation you need from the public, you need to ensure that their basic needs are met. There's nowhere else other than following this recipe. The countries that are being more transparent with their population are sharing information in a transparent way, even um, the unknowns, because there's no doubt that we don't know everything about how this virus is going to evolve, how it's going to impact life at local, national and international level. But being transparent and allowing people to have access to information is a crucial part of the response. And Iranian government has done a great job on that front, promising the public that they would open the country in few weeks without providing them with adequate information of the rationale behind it or the risks or even the simple logistics of how that is going to be done is just adding to anxiety and, and lack of public trust. I wanted us to end our conversation, if possible, with you sharing stories of some of these heroic nurses and doctors, some of whom have lost their lives helping people across the country. 
I think we have seen very difficult moments uh, across the world, but we've also seen the shared humanity among people in different areas of the world. You see healthcare professionals in Iran working really long shifts with actually not that high of an income and prioritizing prioritizing people's health over their safety and their family's safety um, in multiple cities in Tehran, outside Tehran. And um, I've seen other doctors offering their specialty for free online so people wouldn't have to go to hospitals and overcrowd the, the hospitals. And I think there has been a lot of societal appreciation for that and recognition for what they are doing. But this is not going to mean much unless the system can prioritize everyone's health and meeting people's basic needs. Otherwise, the sacrifice alone would not be enough to solve the problem. Tara Seperiafar is a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, where she investigates human rights abuses in Iran and Kuwait. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, she was the Deputy Director of the Human Rights in Iran Unit at the City University New York, where she worked on a project supporting the mandate of the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Iran. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. 
Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.